Welcome to the Personal Equity Podcast, where we discuss investing in yourself and building personal equity. We take a deep dive with our guests into their stories, careers, and lives from both a personal and financial perspective. I'm your host, Mike Troxel. Today, we'll be speaking with Helene Servian, who is the founding partner at Journey One Ventures, a California-based venture capital firm. In our conversation, we covered overcoming doubters, being bold, and breaking into VC as an outsider. The links and information in the episode can be found at personalequitypodcast.com. Hi, Helene. Thank you for joining me. Welcome to the show. Hey, Mike. Uh, Wonderful to reconnect with you from our days at Northeastern uh, back in Boston. And now both of us are in the beautiful state of California, thanks to uh, beautiful California women bringing us back home. So (laughs) excited to to have this chat with you and uh, share about my story with your audience. Awesome. No, great to have you. Uh, so I'd love to start with the present. If you could give listeners an idea of sort of where you are these days and what you're up to professionally. Yeah. So I am based in Silver Lake in Los Angeles and actually split time in between Boulder, Colorado and here. Uh, my boyfriend and I just recently got a place and um, I've been working 90% of my career remote. So I haven't had a crazy adjustment with the COVID lifestyle, but I think having the opportunity to go into the mountains um, is really exciting and being able to split time in between LA and Boulder is a privilege. So I'm parked in between both states right now. Interesting. So 90% of your career remote. Um, I didn't know that. And so would you mind touching on that a little bit? So like you mentioned, I guess COVID hasn't really affected that. Um, So I guess what's that been like and what's it been, like how have you adapted over the years as far as coming up with new routines or new ways to kind of stay motivated? Yeah, absolutely. So I'll give everybody kind of a, a, a good high level overview of my background and, you know, how, how did I get to 90% remote? Um, so, you know, I am an underestimated investor that focuses on investing in underestimated markets. Um, before I got into to investing, I have spent um, majority of my 20s working at early stage startups and have always followed the entrepreneur journey. And so uh, most of those startups typically have started from working within, uh, you know, some hotel lobbies to co-working spaces and then upgrading into WeWork spaces and traveling um, in between, you know, my home base office and my actual apartment office. And so the adjustment into working with a lot of dynamic environments has been quite normal for my lifestyle. Awesome. That, that, that's great. And so I love I love uh, what you said there, underestimated investor that invests in underestimated markets. So would you mind sort of shining a little bit of a light on that and sort of um, what do you do and what do you invest in? Absolutely. So my whole life has really been a story about beating the odds. Um, I grew up in San Francisco proper in the city, uh, in the public school system with a single mom. I'm the youngest of four. My mom's from the Philippines, so I'm first generation uh, Filipino-American with lots of different mixed blood. 
Um, I'm, I'd be afraid to do a 23andMe because I don't know what things would pop up. Uh, so we'll keep it at that. And, um, you know, having having limited resources and having a mom that had a lot of children to take care of, I, I uh, learned a lot about hard work ethic and working, uh, you know, basically busting my ass to, to get to where I am today. Um, one of the first things that um, is memorable about you know, my upbringing is that I uh, was a very competitive volleyball player, but I actually was cut from the volleyball team when I first tried out in middle school in sixth grade. I went to AP Giannini in San Francisco, and the team had won 10 years of championships. Uh, and I wasn't, you know, as great as the, the volleyball players who had been practicing all of their lives. And so I decided to practice every every day in the summertime um, after after that school session ended and came back the following year and made the team. Um, I decided that I really loved volleyball, um, but was also a softball player. And once I became a lot more competitive in the leagues that I played with or played in, um, I remember I was on the B team when I was a freshman in high school um, for my club team. And the A coach, um, I had told the A coach, I was like, you know, I – I really want to play division one volleyball one day. And he laughed at me. Um, and I remember wanting to just prove him wrong and show him that it was possible because, you know, growing up with a single mom, um, she made everything possible that didn't seem possible. And so I've channeled that type of energy into the work ethic that I have professionally. Um, the thing that I'm doing now in the area that I'm really focused in is um, from being an entrepreneur, I made a massive career pivot back in 2017 to do venture venture investing. And the same thing kind of happened to me, which was, um, you know, kind of comical, but also like, you know, another fun challenge for me to take on. And uh, I wanted to, I was working in enterprise tech at the time and wanted to do a massive career pivot because I just felt like I was looking for more fulfillment and working in an industry where I could channel my energy and efforts into something that um, could provide positive impact to people and not just, you know, working in tech. Um, and, uh, you know, having like a business to business communication pathway. So uh, I, I had, uh, you know, networked with a handful of people and said I wanted to pivot my career into venture investing. And uh, usually if you want to be a good venture investor, you want to specialize to some degree and you want to be able to invest in a large growing market. So that for me was the cannabis industry. Um, it started, it, it became recreational in California in 2018. So I was watching all the news about the industry growing and said, you know, this would be a really great opportunity for me to focus uh, my investing um, thesis in. And so uh, when I initially got into this space, it was really difficult to navigate. For those of you, for the audience that's not aware of the cannabis industry, it's a highly regulated, um, still filled with a lots of social stigma and historical stigma and a lot of limited capital. So there's actually not that many investors in this space. You can look at it two ways. Uh, one, that's massive opportunity because folks like Andreessen Horowitz and Sequoia Capital and First Round Capital, some of the biggest venture firms in the world that other venture firms have to compete with, I didn't have to. 
And that was because they wouldn't touch cannabis with a 10 foot pole. Um, but you can invest in this space legally um, as long as you, you know, do your homework and do it diligently. But going back to my journey within to, you know, cannabis VC, there weren't a lot of homes for me to, uh, to, to find essentially, uh, meaning that there weren't a lot of venture firms to work at. And the ones that there were, um, opportunities that they wanted someone with finance background. They wanted someone that had crunched like five years, um, in New York city on wall street investment banking. And that just wasn't me. And so it was really difficult for me to really find my way in. But what I did is I, you know, used what I was really good at, which was super networking, um, learning really fast. And I basically put myself on, you know, a two year MBA track to learn about the cannabis industry and also venture investing. What that ended up looking like is me working with a seed stage fund, a family office, um, helping them, you know, source and diligence their cannabis investments, and then also going to VC trade school in San Francisco. Uh, one thing that I realized about the cannabis industry was that there are a lot of investors and there was a lot of investment, but the same type of investment principles that I would see coming from, you know, the top VC firms weren't really being applied. And the way I look at doing things is that, you know, my sister always tells me, Helene, you know, if you're going to do something, you might as well just be the best at it. And so I wanted to bring, you know, the best principles um, from venture investing into the cannabis space. And that was why I decided to go to the VC trade school. And what exactly is the VC trade school? I, I've never heard of that. Yeah, great question. So <laughs> these, these are these programs really started, I would say, probably span back like 10 years with like the Kaufman Fellows, where they're not necessarily like a trade school, but more of a fellowship program. And um, the VC, there's more VC trade school, schools or investing, investing programs for angels and fund managers because it's becoming a lot more accessible. Um, so I had a friend from Northeastern that was an advisor for uh, an outfit called Venture University. They're based in San Francisco. And a lot of the curriculum is now online. So you can you know do it from anywhere. But I went in... Uh, you know, a few years back for a whole quarter. And the nice thing about the program is that, you know, in order to get into VC, you have to be in VC, which is kind of backwards. And so the program really is structured in a way where you're making investments with your own capital. Part of that is um, pulled in from the tuition that you pay. And they put you in investment teams. I was on the consumer team because I came in it with a focus on the cannabis industry. We also had enterprise tech, uh, fintech, uh, and then also uh, space tech. And so you collaborate with other in investors on your team. Some were PhDs, many had MBAs, um, a few were fund managers, um, and then uh, a few folks like myself had never come from like a VC background. And so I was quite timid, intimidated when I honestly first started because one of the advisors was like the most influential man in Africa. And our uh, first dinner welcome session was like, oh, what's like a cool story about your life? <laughs> and he goes first and he's like, well, I was working one day. He's, he's uh, the uh, 
was a partner at BCG in Africa, and I got an interesting phone call. And my boss told me that Nelson Mandela wanted to meet with me, and I had to drop all my work. And I was like, oh, my God, I don't have a story like that. <laughs> but uh, I have many different stories, just not like meeting Nelson Mandela, um, <laughs> maybe someone of that figure type at some point down the road. So long story short, I was honestly really intimidated. And I remember calling my boyfriend after that dinner and just thinking that, uh, you know, I felt like I was out of my league. Two weeks into the program, I realized I was MVP of the class and um, was born to do venture because I naturally had the personality for it, um, which is being able to hunt and source deals, but also being able to have like the grit tenacity to negotiate terms, uh, pull the trigger when you're doing early stage investments there's only so much data that you can understand about a company and also so much foresight that you have about a growing market that you just got to pull the trigger. And so, um, you know, within that program, our cohort did six investments. I led one of them. Um, It was my first flagship deal into a company called Flower Company. They're based in um, Los Angeles and it's essentially Costco model um, style delivery platform for cannabis goods. Um, And they're doing really well. They're a YC company. They graduated in the spring of 2019. Um, And so that really gave me the experience, but also the confidence to continue on my way. And once I finished the program, the the general partners at the firm told me that I should raise a fund. And I thought they were crazy because I had just started. (laughs) And so since then, I've been on that journey of doing so. Wow, I, I love it, and I'm, I'm not not surprised at all. That that's impressive. So I, I'd like to rewind here for a minute. You mentioned uh, you were going on a two year MBA track um, focused on VC, like a personal sort of MBA. Um, what, what do you mean by that? And what was sort of the, the plan going into that? Yeah, so I mean, I I spent a lot of money on undergrad, so there was no way that I was going to cough up. Uh, another couple hundred thousand dollars to go to grad school. Um, And all my peers, you know, within the VC world, a lot of them come from Ivy Leagues and Penn and top, top grad schools. And, you know, that I think can be seen as a a necessary track, but I am always against status quo in the way that I do things. I think I just naturally I'm akin to that because of how I grew up in the city that I grew up in is very, uh, you know, create your own path and be unique and own it. And so I had a very specific vision. I wanted to be known. I wanted to create a notable uh, reputation in the cannabis industry. And I wanted to be known for being a notable badass VC. And so because I didn't have your traditional track record, um, I didn't want to crunch, you know, start as an analyst associate, work my way up from a principal to a VP to a partner at a fund and only get a small portion of carry. I decided to do a quick, quick paced um, track into building my own track record by doing deals, leading deals, understanding how to, you know, build a fund from the operational back office side and, um, teach myself along the way. So previous into cannabis and VC, I had pivoted my career twice. I 
um, worked for Puma and Reebok out of college um, at the corporate doing digital marketing and corporate communications, and then found myself working in the urban mobility space, uh, specifically electric bikes and light electric vehicles. So I spent like about five years in that industry back in 2012 when there weren't even bike shares on the ground. So I got my feet wet and working in emerging markets pretty early on, but I had a vision that these emerging markets, um, you know, one had a lot of positive impact in the world, but also you can make a lot of money in the spaces if you trusted your vision and um, continued through. So when I was in the urban mobility space, I, I did a massive pivot into tech, enterprise tech, and worked for an AI speech analytics company um, called Voice Space. That's back, that's a venture backed and based in San Francisco. And um, I, it, you know, it was it was great because it was actually through a, a close friend from Northeastern um, who was the marketing director at the time, and she said, you know, Helene, I think you'd be a great fit for our company. And I told her I have no idea what AI and machine learning is. <laughs> and she said, you know, you can learn it. It's totally fine. So I did that. And I created like a 20 page training manual to understand the vernacular of speaking, you know, that type of tech. Um, and I helped build the customer success program and started managing strategic partnerships. So I had gained the experience of what it's like to penetrate um, a new market new industry, new company quite quickly and built that same formula, took that same methodology into um, how I learned how to do venture investing and build a reputation in the cannabis industry. So how do you get the courage to do that, to decide you're going to go into VC, to, um, to go into the VC trade school? I mean, you mentioned day one, right? You called your boyfriend and said, I, you know, I'm out of my league. I don't, I don't belong here, but I'm sure you had those thoughts and doubts before you even joined. So what, like, yeah, how did you get the courage to say, I'm doing this? Awesome question. I, you know, so a couple of years ago, um, before the Me Too movement, there, there was a lot of reports coming out that 2% of female founders were getting venture funding. And that's out of billions of dollars. And so when you look at that stat, um, you have to look at it from a top-down analysis as well as a bottoms up. Like what is driving that 2%? Is it that there aren't enough great female founders or is it that there are not enough female investors that actually care about investing in female uh, founders? And, and, do the returns, are the returns there? And the returns are absolutely there. So for me, um, you know, when I was making this career pivot is very intentional. I saw that VC firms had a lot of power and influence that they could dictate what the world could look like with their capital. And if you look around the biggest companies, bigger than governments alone, bigger than some countries alone are venture backed tech companies. And for me, um, you know, I love creating positive impact on an individual level to my friends, family, um, and communities. But if you could do it at a scale that was, you know, a hundred X impactful, why not? If someone, so I think, you know, when you're working towards a cause that's bigger than you and 
you realize that you can be five foot one and play D one volleyball, you know, a tight white woman sport. Um, why not challenge the status quo again? Uh, there's a little bit of crazy in me, which is like, I just love the competitive nature of doing things that people think are impossible because I just believe that humans are the most ridiculous species on the planet. Like we create something on a sketchbook and build massive buildings and airplanes and space shuttles, you know, and if you have a vision to lead and you have that work ethic and a good heart, like people will, people will trust you and want to be part of that journey. And so part of my job within this journey is not only to push myself, but to push people around me and say that you don't have to be a cog in the wheel. Like you can, you can dictate your future. The only thing that's ever in the, in your way is you. And so I'm going to make you rewind a, a long way here. Um, one, one, one of my first memories of you was some of your teammates <laughs> telling you that you were the best knife salesperson, Cutco salesperson, <laughs> east of the Mississippi. Is, is that true? Well, that's a stretch. Um, I was really, really good. Uh, and I knew some of like, the best Cutco salespeople that had like these swords from selling half a million dollars worth of knives. Uh, my, my, my girlfriend's little sister is now married to that gentleman and he's awesome. Um, <laughs> but yeah, if you can sell knives, you can sell capital, um, <laughs> and fundraise. But I, I, uh, started at Cutco first job at college, um, found it on Craigslist and saw that it was paying way above, you know, being a co- volleyball coach at a camp and that why not apply? And, the interesting thing is that I've actually historically sold a lot of non-traditional products. I've sold tech, I've sold bikes, I've sold knives. Um, now I manage money and capital and to some degree, you know, sell, sell my vision and sell my brand um, and how I make decisions. So um, if you can sell Cutco knives for all the Cutco people out there, you can raise a venture fund. <laughs> with hard work and practice and, you know, coaching and all that. But so that, that, that's a good segue. I mean, um, again, you're, you're great at sales. You're great at sort of relationships and just connecting with people. How has your approach shifted, if at all, from selling, like you said, products like tech, bikes, knives to selling you, selling your vision? Yeah. So, I mean, I think with anything, um, It depends on how you look at sales, right? Like a lot of people find it really intimidating. My first sales job, honestly, I felt like I didn't really know. I didn't really have proper like sales training. So I taught myself how to sell and I learned very fast by doing things like wrong and not really having a process, but over time building process. And, um, for me, I don't think about it as selling, even though, you know, it is in some form of way. When you're passionate about something, it doesn't feel like selling because you're just talking about something you love doing. When you talk to somebody who's a really amazing cook or pastry chef and you ask them, you know, how did you bake this thing? It tastes so delicious. And they go into the nuance and the specialty of the knives they use, the ingredients they source, and they love that they put into the food. 
um, you buy into that because you kind of feel that energy and you feel that devotion and you can experience it. So for me, um, as an emerging manager with a limited track record, you know, it's a lot of the first checks that I am going to get are based off of people trusting me and trusting my word that I'll make good decisions because the data, you know, I've limited, I've, I've limited data compared to some, but you know, I do have a, a solid track record and history and many references, but at the end of the day, um, it's almost, it's almost like the type of investing I do, like the founders that I meet, uh, some of them, sometimes you only have like a few weeks to make a decision because the round is very competitive. I know, you know, some PE firms that had to make a call on doing like a half a billion dollar investment in three day turnaround. And that's like a massive company. So at the end of the day, it's, you know, it's, it's a mixture of trust, but also for me, um, I'm just sharing people what I'm passionate about. And the biggest thing is also honoring my integrity and the word that I have to people. So three years into your career pivot, are you surprised at where you are right now? You know, when you're a very competitive person, it's really easy to be hard on yourself. And then you talk to your friends and family and they're like, what, look what you've done in the past three years. It's crazy. You know, I have people asking me to speak on panels um, in Europe and um, asking for people, asking to be on advisory boards. I have to start saying no um, to people. And it's a really, it's a really rewarding feeling knowing that a lot of that hard work has, has come to fruition and it's still blossoming. Um, I, I've had one of those like visions where I knew I've always known that I was going to do something crazy and great in my life and not getting too caught up in perfecting what that looks like, but just following my path and trusting that you know, keeping a good head on my shoulders, keeping myself surrounded by super intellectually curious people with good hearts um, and good intentions will help me keep on the path that I want to be on. So definitely like know that this is the right path. Um, but to the exact degree of which it's turned out, it's really hard to predict. Like no one could have predicted 2020. Um, if 20, if, if COVID didn't happen, I honestly don't know how this year would have panned out. And I'm really grateful that it did because I've built, uh, I've gained a lot of strength, um, within hardship. And so I like to learn a lot, um, when I'm feeling discomfort. And I think that with challenge, um, you know, you build stronger muscles. So looking under the hood a little bit, it's like, how would somebody, get started and venture. So say, um, you know, I want to start a venture fund, right? And I have uh, maybe fill out some paperwork. Maybe there's a website. Um, do I go knock on my neighbor's doors and see if they want to invest? Do I go look for companies first? It's sort of like, what's, um, what would somebody do? Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's regular regulatory, restraints um, and also some new opportunities uh, within the past uh, five or so years that have given the opportunity uh, for people to invest. Uh, the two things is that 
you know, to be an accredited, you have to be an accredited investor to invest into private companies that are not doing equity crowdfunded campaigns. Um, accredited investor means that you have to have net assets over $1 million, work for a firm that has assets over $5 million, um, uh, have an income of $200,000 for the past two years, or have an income of $300,000 with your spouse for the past two years. Um, that is actually changing and it hasn't been formalized, but those who have been um, specially trained or qualify as a you know educated investor can potentially be deemed as accredited. Now, the other side of the spectrum is that in 2012, Obama passed the Jobs Act. And um, the important thing about this is that it gives opportunity for people to invest into private companies without being accredited. So in the last couple of years, we saw, you know, a surge within equity crowdfunding platforms like Republic or WeFunder and SeedInvest that give the opportunity for non-accredited investors to invest in companies for as little as $100. Why do they create these things? So for accredited investors, you know, the intention is want to make sure that people who don't understand investing protect their own money. I push back on that and I think it gives opportunity for the wealthy to get wealthier, but there's some degree of, you know, definitely know what you're doing before you put your money down. Um, the difference is that, you know, when you invest in the public stock market, all of that data is visible. And for private companies, you have to learn how to diligence properly. But, um, you know, there are a lot of great, there are a lot of super smart people who don't make over $200,000. So either lower that cap um, and, and create that so there's better opportunity. On the, you know, equity crowdfunding side that gives opportunity for people to invest that are not accredited. Um, I think it's, it, it's also really interesting because you see a lot of people put like a bunch of, you know, maybe a hundred, hundred dollar bets across the board. And for them, they're just learning and they think it's fun. Um, they might invest in things that they can relate to, um, which is why consumer products always do really well versus like security tech or, you know, tech related things that are specialized. Um, but sometimes those aren't as sophisticated investors. So I do see both sides of the coin. Um, but I think providing equal access and opportunity is a big thing. And so, you know, going back to what you mentioned, there are different types of angel groups for those who want to um, learn how to invest. Um, one of the big things that I always tell uh, potential limited partners in my fund is that if you want to learn how to angel invest, um, you can invest with me on a portfolio, meaning, you know, you, Mike, can invest in like five companies directly, but you're also, you have higher reward, but you also have higher risk. And so it's kind of like investing on a mutual fund when you invest in a venture firm. People are just not as familiar with the structure. But when you invest in a venture firm, the structure is typically uh, limited partners who are the investors in the fund get 80% of carry on top of their principal um, if there are returns. And then the the partners, the general partners who manage the fund and deploy the capital and call it, make the decisions, they typically get around 20%. Those numbers flex a little bit. 
Cucumber is essentially investing on a portfolio, right? So your risk is mitigated, but your returns are lowered. I'll give you an example. So if you're investing in a startup, um, you can put a $50,000 check in. That's a, you know, minimum check size for that startup. And you might have anywhere from a zero return because it's highly risk or 50 to 100x return. When you invest in a portfolio, um, your return profile might be somewhere around like two to five X, depending upon, you know, how the companies hit. But if there are like five companies that end up going bankrupt and are at a loss, the, you know, 15 other companies in the portfolio of total 20 can help balance that out for you. Yep. Makes sense. And what what is the name of your fund? So Journey One Ventures. Journey One Ventures, and this is uh, I usually save this for the end. But if somebody wanted to learn more um, about Journey One or potentially investing, would they contact you? Would they go to your website? Yeah, so um, you can connect with me on LinkedIn. Uh, my my name will be discoverable, you know, through your, through your podcast, but it's. It's a very easy name to Google. Um, so uh, if you find me on LinkedIn, I'm very responsive. It's the only social media that I actively use. Um, and uh, I'm happy to you know, share about the type of deals that I do, not just cannabis, uh, but also uh, like to fund uh, female founders, uh, the future of wellness and culture. And... Uh, I'm also happy to steer you in the direction of different resources that you can tune into to learn about angel investing. Angelist is a really good platform um, for equity crowdfunding. There's a bunch I listed off as well. And so, you know, once, once you get your feet wet, you get access to a lot of these programs and then you can register for some demo days with accelerators like 500 startups or Y Combinator. So you know, I've been doing this for a little bit now. So once you once you break into the network, you you know you get a lot of access. But it's always helpful to have some folks who have angel invested in before and can teach you some basic principles to to make sure that you know you make very smart decisions. Yep, and uh, you did mention the accreditor accredited investor uh, guidelines, and and that's something. I'm familiar with as well with with my business, and um, you did mention this. The that earlier this year there was an announcement that sort of included um, a lot of financial professionals. Sort of, mm-hmm. if you yeah, if you work in the industry and you have one of these um, handful of certifications, then that would um, allow you. So I um, I agree. I think it's a it's a balance right between access and education. Um, you don't want it, you know, you could have no money and be very well versed in the space, or you could have a lot and you could not be at all. Right. So it's, um, how do you strike that balance? Yeah. I, I think, uh, someone had for it on Twitter. Um, I'll see if I can find it, but you know, wealth doesn't necessarily equal smarts. <laughs> yep. No, that's, uh, <clears throat> That's true. So I, your journey so far, I know, I know we're kind of just getting started here. 
Uh, were there any specific people or mentors that helped you along the way? You, I mean, you did mention um, a doubter or two, but were there any uh, anyone that was behind you giving you a tailwind or uh, took a chance on you? Yeah, that's great. I mean, I... So I have many different mentors and support systems and something that I've been really working on for the last couple of years. Um, I took some personal development courses uh, through a program called Landmark and it significantly transformed you know, my life and this big reason why I'm on the journey that I'm on now and have the confidence to do what I'm doing now. And so one, I developed like tools to, to, to have better awareness of my strengths and weaknesses. And, and so one of, you know, one of those weaknesses, I think for some people, definitely for me is like vulnerability and making sure that I have the right support systems um, to help me on my path, because I knew I was going to be doing something very difficult. Um, One of the, you know, one of my good friends that I met through the program, his name is Jesse uh, Belontak. And, I, you know, I did the program 2017 for nine months straight. Um, I self-invested in the courses and they're a couple hundred dollars each. Um, probably about six to seven, no more than that. Maybe close to 10 hours a week. If maybe that's a shot, five, five to 10 hours a week, depending upon what the program was. And then 2018, I, co- I took a couple different courses. And when I moved to San Francisco in 2019, I, uh, knew that I wouldn't have as much flexibility to go to the in-person courses. So I called him up and said, you know, Jesse, I really need, um, I'm going to need a personal coach this year. Do you, do you think you can do that? And so, you know, every Tuesday, um, 8.30 a.m., we chat for 30 minutes about my obstacles and uh, the possibilities that I wanted to create for myself that week. And and that, that really helped. Um, I think some of the, uh, a lot of the organizations that I'm also now a part of, such as the Women VC organization um, and All Rays have been massive supports. They've created the opportunity to connect with other women in venture. Um, and I can do so through our Slack channels. There's a lot of investor Slack channels, but these ones in particular are really impactful because um, I can be vulnerable with a lot of the, you know, different women on those platforms from different stages of, of, uh, you know, venture firms from big ones to small ones from, you know, analysts to partner roles. And it's really great to have those communities. So a lot of the support systems I've had are from these networks, but also just like friends and family and my boyfriend, uh, helping me get through the hard times and, you know, celebrate the high times as well. Um, and I also like to really collaborate with other, uh, you know, investors that I'm super excited about and feel good energy with. Um, one of those individuals is uh, Rajiv Kapoor um, for, with Chai Angels. And they're an early stage venture firm based out in New York City. Um, they have a portfolio of 38 companies and 30 of those are female founders. And so, you know, he's, he's a man investing in women. He has, you know, three daughters and is really passionate about supporting uh, female founders and just like sees the future um, being great if run by women predominantly. And so 
we've developed a, re- a relationship earlier this past year, and I joined as a venture partner to help advise the fund and also help lead their syndicate deals. And, um, you know, maybe not like a formal mentor, but it's, it's folks like that who may not have, you know, the most notable reputation on like, you know, fortune or, uh, you know, 50,000 followers on LinkedIn, but they're people who really give a shit and uh, really align with the same values that I have. And what is a venture partner? Great question, Mike. <laughs> so uh, a venture partner can be a couple of things. I, um, so it could be someone who is highly specialized um, in a subject matter that a firm invests in. So for example, if a firm invests in space tech and uh, consumer goods or beauty and wellness, um, you know, I could be a venture partner that really understands the consumer market. And so when that firm makes a decision, they might call me and say, Helene, we have this really great deal, but we need to connect with, you know, some of the top CPG companies in your industry to validate if this, you know, letter of intent that the startup had mentioned is actually true. And so I use my connections to help them make good decisions. Another one is also deal sourcing. So, uh, you know, for the same regard, if I'm super specializing the consumer uh, market, I might have a reputation where founders just know that I'm an investor and I will always get like first first dibs on deals. And then uh, for my scenario case uh, with Chai Angels, I'm not, you know, fully t- full time associated with the fund, but I help lead their syndicate uh, segment of their business. And essentially what a syndicate is is um, I help pitch deals to outside investors of the pot fund who want to participate. And the uniqueness is that, you know, we have a relationship with these founders already. And the deals that we do at Chai, for example, we're only syndicating top performing uh, companies out of the existing portfolio. So we've actually already invested in these companies and these founders might be raising different rounds of capital, which we call follow-on rounds. And we'll put a little bit of money in that round um, and exercise like our pro rata rights, but then invite other select investors um, into the round as well. So it's a benefit um, to the to the investors who invest with us because you know they know that we do good deals and do good diligence, and we make it very easy. Um, by doing all the work and that's why we get some upside um, in the deal versus them getting a hundred percent of carry because we're doing that homework and doing all of that sourcing. So I'd love to dive into some of these personal investments you mentioned. I mean, you mentioned VC trade school and you just mentioned another one, the personal development courses through landmark um, just from a financial perspective. Um, you know, I know some some people are better or worse at, um, you know, having the outlay of cash for some items, right? It's not easy to spend money on a development course, for example. Was there any any hesitation around that, um, or or do you just know deep down this will pay off? This will be worth it. Yeah, I mean, so in particular for Landmark. Um, 
when I first saw the price tag, I was like, what? I mean, it was $600, right? But this is like my mid, mid twenties. And I had never, I had never paid for, you know, wellness related investment. And I think that's changed a lot now. Um, you know, it's very, sometimes it's very faux pas to have a therapist, uh, in Western culture, because that means there's, there's something wrong. But I think, you know, in the United States, we're very reactive to our wellness. And so my goal is to be very proactive. And so the first time I did the program, um, you know, it was like $600. And um, I was making, I was, I, I had saved money. So it wasn't like a make or break investment, but I understand that it is for some people. And um, it's like group therapy. So I had, you know, people from all age groups, all races and colors, um, from all over LA and some had flown in outside of LA for this program and some had sacrificed a lot to be there, um, to leave their kids or to, um, you know, work additional nights or get an extra job to make those programs happen. And I think there's a world in which like, one of my, one of my mantras and one of my sayings to people is just be bold and um, one of the biggest things that I got out of the program is making bold requests. And so what does that mean? Um, a bold request is something, you know, it's a bold request when you feel uncomfortable about the question that you're going to ask. And, you know, it's exercising vulnerability and it's exercising the uh, potential of someone saying no. But what, what at the end of the day, if someone says no, like, not a big deal, right? Like, but if they say yes, that's a massive gain, right? So this is kind of putting my investor hat on risk versus reward. It's like, let's take the risk if the reward is outsized. And so what I would say to people who have, um, you know, minimal funds is ask the program if they're scholarships, ask your company if they would sponsor you or subsidize your education. Um, you know, Panda Express sends all of their employees through this program. Um, because I think leadership like really loves it. And so they pay for that. But in the case that, it, that, that someone doesn't, you know, I, I believe in the world where you can always make something work. It's really difficult to see that when everything is pounding against you. And um, I'm not trying to like preach uh, things that are not possible, but I truly believe in a world in which people want to help people. And, um, you know, maybe it's 50 bucks from every family member. Uh, but, but you just have to explain, like, why is this going to benefit your life? And people will opt in if they want to help you out. Yep. Well said. Um, and you, you seem like uh, one of several folks I've interviewed so far in the show that are um, very good about making these personal investments. And um, we went to the same school, so I, maybe you've had this laugh before as well. But I, I always find it interesting if I'm contemplating um, a course or something like that. And we'll just use your example, say $600, um, where it's like, oh, man, you know, that, that seems like a lot. Um, but I swear, I in college, I took like a history of rock and roll class that was like $4,000. Um, I was so, in that class too, <laughs> but barely. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, meet, meet you and maybe 500 other people. Um, but it is interesting. You know, there's 
Um, you know, this innovation of education, there's more things popping up these days online and even some more expensive courses, a couple thousand dollars, same thing, right? I'm having those hesitations, but I know the payoff will be, you know, like a VC type payoff, right? 10, 50, 100 X. Um, but you have that hesitation. It's, it's just interesting. So, so well done on, um, on, you know, biting the bullet there and, and uh, it sounds like it was totally worth it. And so right now you, so to make sure I heard you correctly, so somebody you met in that program is now like a personal um, coach of yours on a weekly basis? Yeah, so um, haven't been, it didn't really continue after the first year because I, I had put those learnings into practice and felt like, you know, I could blossom on my own for a little bit of time. So I still want to go to back back to, you know, personal development work. It doesn't have to be through Landmark. But um, there comes a point when you just like need to grow a little bit on your own. And so I felt like that was my that was my time. Um, but yeah, he's a super close friend of mine, lives in L.A., so we hang out all the time. But, um, you know, when I need to ask kicking, I just call my buddy Jesse up and, you know, I tell him <laughs> I definitely have a racket to break. Um I have a lot of blind spots on this because I'm frustrated and emotional about this. Um, can you help me see where my blind spots are? Awesome. So are there any other ways you've invested in yourself personally, as far as like, again, physical, mental health, relationship, um, relationships? Yeah. So I think, you know, I come from a family culturally, uh, was born and raised Filipino and uh, my mom has had a stroke. Her two siblings have passed from strokes and my two aunts have had a stroke as well, unfortunately. A lot of that is diet related. Um, and so for me, health and wellness is so exp- uh, so important um, to invest in, into the things that you know I put in my body. I think, you know, Steve Jobs had mentioned one of his speeches when he was nearing um, his terminal illness with cancer was that, if you don't eat food as your medicine, you're going to be eating medicine as your food. And so, you know, part of that investment is like consciously eating and um, making sure that I work out. I used to have class pass and then COVID hit. And um, I was like, what do I do? And I, I live in Los Angeles, you know, and, and I now I, I run one to two miles a day. And I do this like funny app workout called Adrian James, it's like a British app. And it's only 99 cents. Um, so I can also tweet about it if someone wants to follow AJ. And um, I make sure that I pay attention to my holistic wellness. Um, what does that mean? It means that I have, you know, mental decompression that I need to pay attention to if I'm working really hard and some some ways that I do that is sleep, um, taking a break to walk outside or doing headspace in the morning so that I don't start my day feeling um, like I have a billion things to do, even though I do. Um, and uh, listening to like what I need, like spiritually and emotionally, um, whether that's, you know, support from my family or just being able to express myself. I've just become a lot more aware of, you know, my body, my brain and my physical needs um, and making sure I'm paying attention to all of those things um, equally. 
So, you know, I try to, I try to create accountability with some of my friends that like to work out and say, Hey, like if I don't work out, you know, X amount of days, like kick my butt and help me get back on track. And so Headspace is a really big one. And I know people who have graduated from Headspace have done other things like, uh, I think it's transcendental meditation. And so once you start getting into this type of work, um, for me, it's just been extraordinarily uh, rewarding and healing. And part of why, you know, I, I love working in the, you know, plant plant medicine industries is that the people who work in those spaces share those same um, values as I. I love that uh, quote from Steve Jobs about food. Um, when uh, when these episodes roll out, I'm sure you're going to be interested in the one with Jackie Bertaldo. She is um, a one of the head dietitians at Stanford. So um, it was an interesting interesting conversation. I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I think diet. I think diet's everything. Like I don't I don't like to eat meat during lunch anymore because it makes me more tired. And so a lot of what I've been you know, a lot of the things that we talked about earlier in this podcast about practicing like an athlete is like training, training in my work like an athlete and knowing how to optimize my body and my brain for the work that I'm doing. Absolutely. So we'll uh, roll into our uh, final batch of questions here. Any interesting content you're consuming these days as far as writers, um, books, podcasts, movies? So I do... <laughs> For me, I love these things. Um, for some, it may not be as interesting, but I listen to a lot of business podcasts. Um, 20 Minute VC by Harry Stubbings. He's interviewed fit, over 1,500 venture capitalists around the world. Um, so I've used that as a great resource to learn about different um, investing styles and firms and the people behind them. Um there's, I think, VC Unlocked by Samir Kadri, um, which is really interesting. And what else do I have here? Um, investing in cannabis is a good one. Uh, by my buddy Brandon. Um, and uh, I love using, you know, Alamoves, alamoves.com as my online platform for like yoga uh other fun things that i do uh thanks to my boyfriend who loves the tv which i respect it's just not, not my default state and this is not a call out in him like watching a lot of tv that's just how we most enjoy his time uh we've been watching umbrella academy which is phenomenal because the cinematography the costumes the writing um is just second to none. It's it's really good. I think there's this whole new um, trend on like superheroes gone wrong or some like, you know, not the ideal superhero story. So that in boys on Amazon Prime has been very entertaining. And last one I'll put in there is Fargo. So it sounds like you're voting along party lines with your podcast listening sort of all VC themed. <laughs> Yeah, I, I mean, I, I read a lot of like business articles and newsletters, but it's, you know, when, when you're in this world, you it's, it's addicting, but it's also hard to keep your uh, thumb off the pulse. 
So you're always, I'm always on top of like what's trending, what's happening, who's, who's raised the latest funding, um, what new companies are coming to fruition. And I find that really exciting and energizing. Yep. And it's really interesting when your sort of personal interests align with what you're doing professionally. Um, <clears throat> I know I, I sort of struggle with this, I guess, where I could almost always be working, right? If I'm outside walking and if I'm listening to a financial related podcast, I guess you technically you could call that work. Um, so it, it is interesting. So uh, you mentioned, what was it? Umbrella Academy? Umbrella Academy. Yep. And that's, on, and that's on Amazon? Netflix. Got it. Uh, okay. So a little curveball for you. If you, had to decide, if you had to design a course for any group of people um, at any age, what would the curriculum be and why? So sort of thinking from age five to we'll call it 30, any course. Yeah, so something I'm actually super passionate about, um, which I can start doing now and have been doing, but you know, once I once I gain incredible amounts of wealth and can move political parties, um, <laughs> I would love to invest in higher education and just education. Um, I grew up in a household and didn't really learn about personal finances when I was younger, and I think. You know, I have some friends where, you know, their families talked about it. And I felt that even in high school, it just wasn't a subject and it doesn't make any sense. Um, it, it's not even a subject in, in college. It's like, yeah, we'll learn business finance. But what about your personal finance? Like, how is that not a primary, um, you know, learning track? And so for me, I think that would be really fun to teach like early high school students about like personal finances and, and savings and, and get them excited about like finance in a way that's palpable um, and not intimidating so that they can feel like they have control um, and an understanding of, of how to, you know, or organize uh, their future on the finance side. Because I think that once you feel confident about that, you can do a lot. I think a lot of women in business and also a lot of young millennials um, don't really understand the stock market. And if you don't do finance for trade, um, you know, for, for professional reasons, it's, it's very intimidating. And so there's a lot of wealth that's not used and properly invested in. And I think there's a huge opportunity out there. Yep. I mean, it's, uh, I think it's super sad that most people learn about finance when they realize they have a student loan payment that's due. Uh, that's like personal finance 101 here. So I, uh, I think that'd be a great course. So a dream guest for your own personal interview. So if you had an hour of someone's time, past or present, who would you sit down with and why? <laughs> that's a great question. Um, that's so hard to answer. I'll just say the thing that comes off the top of my head. Uh, Rene Redzepi, he is the head chef of Noma, uh, which is one of the world's leading restaurants um, based in Copenhagen. And uh, I used to follow this guy on, on Instagram and he's so brilliant in a very interesting way. You know, I look at 
I love chefs tables and I, I look at um, highly acclaimed chefs as artists and, you know, they just have a passion for creating a different kind of art that's consumable, which is more fun because you pay such a high price. Might as well, might as well be able to eat it um, versus stare at it. And he can walk through a forest and forage and pick up like a leaf and, and talk about how the flavors and texture and the color can blend with these other things that he's looking to cook in a soup. And I think his brain just works in a, in a beautiful, magical way. And it's one of the things that I like to bring into business is like creativity. I think that there are ways to do things that don't have, that don't necessarily make sense five years after, right? So how do you keep innovation within business? It's keeping a creative mind, keeping a curious mind, but also blending other types of influences into like your style. So, you know, one of my good friends is a producer. I live in Los Angeles, so I have a lot of friends who are creatives and actors. And I just love learning about business in those industries and understanding how, you know, I can put my creative hat on um, within the work that I do. That's a great answer. And, and it's a unique answer. And uh, sort of on and off topic, we're, <laughs> we're, we're, we're having a meal tonight that we picked up from the, a Netflix like barbecue show. And I'm, it's so good. I'm so excited. Wait, which show? Um, I think it's called like American Barbecue Masters. Something like that, American Barbecue Cookout. Uh, that sounds awesome. I'll have, I'll have my better half send you the the recipe, but it's it's, uh, it's called Moho Chicken. That's incredible. I'm um, gonna wait. have to ask for um, some food picks. Being a foodie, you need a yeah, recipe and pictures. Yeah, yeah. There you go. There you go. Um, so flipping the question around again, you're on a. Uh, you mentioned one or two mile run, but we're gonna stretch this one out a little bit. We'll call it a four or five mile run. You are forced to listen to me interview somebody. Do you have any guest uh, ideas or recommendations for me? Forced to listen to you interview somebody. Yeah, gotcha. and you're and you'll be you'll be listening. Yeah. Um. Hmm. You know, I would actually really love to hear a podcast with you and President Awun from Northeastern. Um, I just, I mean, we can, we can probably get him on the podcast. He, I just hear like how brilliant and, uh, nice and cool he is. Uh, he, I mean, he speaks like a dozen different languages. He's brought the university from like no name to the name. Um, and, uh, I, I work closely with the university, um, and I'm, I'm helping them build their VC ecosystem. So I would love for, for you to interview him and, you'd be surprised of how many kick-ass entrepreneurs um, are coming out of Northeastern that a lot of people don't know about. Would you mind? Um, a, I would love to talk to President Owen. He's a great guy. I've only chatted with him maybe less than 10 times, usually in sort of fun social settings. Um, brilliant guy. Would you mind? Um, I, I was, I, it was, I wish I got to it, but you just mentioned it. So would you mind highlighting sort of, Northeastern and kind of what you're doing um, in the VC community there? Yeah. So for, you know, for folks who are not familiar with Northeastern, Mike and I went to Northeastern. It's based in Boston. Um, you know, he was the 
tall, very strong rower. And, you know, I played volleyball and um, <clears throat> we met through great friends. And, you know, his his wife is uh, one of my teammates and setters who gave me one of my nicknames, but I'm not going to share that nickname. So you're going to have to LinkedIn me. And uh, <laughs> the way that I look at, you know, getting involved with your university is that you you know, I paid a lot of money to go Northeastern and the value that I get from that education shouldn't just stay within the years that I've gone to school there. And so for me, you know, coming out to California, um, I'm a super networker. I was like, I should really build, you know, uh, a strong network with Northeastern post-graduation because 65% of my friends in Los Angeles are actually from Northeastern, ironically, Um, not even intentionally. So I noticed that we were crazy super networkers doing really cool, interesting things, but um, didn't really have a relationship with the university. So um, they launched uh, the WISE um, organization, which is the Women's Interdisciplinary um, Society of Entrepreneurship. And I'm on the advisory board for that group. And it's a student run group of, uh, you know, females, um, that are entrepreneurs and it's crazy and inspiring because a lot of these females are freshmen and sophomore sophomores who've had like six to eight jobs. And I look at this as getting to really understand um, what is it? Gen, Gen Z and Gen X uh, building a relationship with them, keeping up to date on what those trends are, but also helping them um, with things that I wish someone had helped me with before. And uh, I'm also an advisor to the Huntington Angels Network Group, which is the Northeastern Affiliated Fund um, that's also student-led. And so I was one of the first founders, female founders, that put my venture um, through IDEA, which is a student-run accelerator at Northeastern. And that was 10, you know, more than 10 years ago. And when you look at entrepreneurship ecosystems, you have to look at holistically, like what makes it move and what makes it progress. And a big part of that is capital, right? Like you can have the founders, but if you don't have the investors, um, you know, how do, how do those startups get resources to grow? And, you know, we were missing a big part of that. And so for me, um, it's working closely with the staff and also students to build that ecosystem and helping corral some of the alumni to um, contribute back to that. Because, you know, when, when you work in VC, you work with a lot of people who come from Ivy's and those endowments and those networks, um, definitely envious, but, you know, I'm competitive, right? So I'm always thinking, how can I do better than you? And so part of that is like, I want to one up, you know, Harvard at some point. It's going to take a really long time. (laughs) I will say that, but I think it's possible. Um, And I live in a world of possibility. So that's one of the reasons why um, I work closely with the university. That's great. I'm I'm glad you you brought that up. And so uh, you already mentioned, I guess, the best place for people to find you, LinkedIn. And I guess a follow-on question to that, uh, you mentioned LinkedIn is the only social media you use, obviously, um, or your primary, rather. Yeah. A rare a rare statement for um, somebody in our generation. Uh, and anything behind that? Is everything else too, too toxic or what? No, I'm also on Twitter. Um, Instagram is more of like my private life stuff. Um, not that I'm like, 
you know, there's, there's nothing to hide. It's more of, I don't, I try to focus certain social channels for specific things. And LinkedIn is very business oriented. Twitter is a mixture of two, but all of my tweets are literally business oriented. Um, And if people want to reach out to me directly, it's Helene at journey1.vc. So, um, you know, feel free to give me a shout. Great. And I will link to all of that in the notes here. Uh, So it's been great chatting with you. Any parting thoughts for our listeners? I want to thank you, Mike, um, for inviting me and giving me the opportunity to share my story and hopefully inspire other listeners out there on their journeys within whatever industry that they work in. Um, Hopefully, regardless, if you're interested in VC, you learned something new about yourself and new about something that you could do um, for yourself. Um, But what I would say is, uh, you know, be bold, be brilliant, and be badass. Um, It's my mantra. Beautiful note to end on. Um, Good seeing you, Helene, and, uh, and best of luck in your journey. Appreciate you. Thank you, Mike. Thanks again for listening to today's show. We hope you enjoyed it. All of the show notes and links can be found at personalequitypodcast.com. If you enjoyed the show, feel free to share it with a friend or leave a review. Reviews help the show get noticed. The best places to leave a rating or a review are iTunes or Spotify. Mike Troxell owns Modern Financial Planning. All opinions expressed by Mike or guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinions of modern financial planning. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions.